The recurrent theme of calm computing is explored more deeply in this discussion with Logan Allen, whose focus is infrastructure and product at TLON. Logan sees the attention economy, with all its pop-ups and newsfeed clickbait, as a result of the way startups are organized and funded. In between rebukes of VC capital and the growth business model, Logan describes a software landscape where the user is king, extending the views of Christian and Anthony. The only way Logan believes this can be achieved is to create a computing platform with different product design incentives. Part of this picture is a unified tech stack that applications share rather than the bespoke but very similar internal tooling built individually by major tech companies like Uber, Facebook, Airbnb, and the rest. For Logan, Herbert addresses this by standardizing a large part of the system stack. As an abstract I.O. interface, it separates the software and hardware layers in a way that allows applications to be developed for an environment that is consistent across hardware. This makes Herbert a much more efficient way of developing software from a corporate perspective. One of Logan's most powerful revelations is that today, system software, Linux for example, is deeply complex and growing ever more so, and the number of people who understand the way it works is shrinking proportionately to the task of maintaining that software. Designing a new platform that evolves towards stability may be the only way to ensure a secure computing landscape in the future. But first, we talk product. So uh, my name is Logan Allen, and I found out about Urbit on Twitter when I was following a bunch of Bitcoin mystics while I was in college. And I thought it was interesting. I was really worried about a societal collapse at the time and learning a lot about how society is structured by various incentive systems and things along those lines. So I was very interested in the idea that you could have some type of calm tech platform that had a desire to enact change simply by structuring the medium of how messages are transmitted and how people are interacting. So I'm interested in different angles on which Urbit provides new incentives for the way that people develop software and for the way that people use software. That's that's probably what I'm most interested in. And I'm interested in in how we plan on making it possible for people to build products on top of Urbit that are real cohesive experiences and how we're going about doing that like practically. So you say cohesive experiences. Yeah. And yeah, it sounds to me like you've got like a, a product bent because everyone's very ideological. Everyone's very technical. Yeah. Um, but I haven't heard a lot about what to me feels like concrete product. Yeah. Yeah. So I do product. That's that's what I do. That's my main background. If you build a product and it's on top of this wonderful system that has all these wonderful theoretical traits and all of this, it doesn't matter at all unless you can build something that serves some need that people have better than some other thing that already exists. I, so I think it's very good and useful that we have all of the theoretical computer science people at this company. It's a It's really wonderful. But... At some point, you know, rubber needs to hit the road and you need to actually build something and serve some real need. The way that uh, venture capital companies go about finding and building good products in today's world is very, very similar to the way that um, 
oil companies go about trying to find new places to dig for oil. They invest small amounts of resources into a large number of places that, that they think might be viable. They're basically guessing. Most of those bets don't come up with anything. And then eventually they hit oil, and whoever is at that location is able to then capitalize on it and make a lot of money. VC works exactly the same way. All of these companies are building the same types of products. They're all building web applications. They're all using Node.js or React or whatever the popular frameworks are. They're all using the same technologies. They all have the same corporate structure, and they all uh, have the same set of incentives, which are to get the maximum number of eyeballs, get the maximum amount of engagement from those people, and if they're able to create some type of network effect where those people are interacting with each other a lot and have some real need for their product, then they'll go on and they'll build out a team of legal people, of DevOps people, of security people, and then they'll turn into the classic growth company that Silicon Valley loves. The crazy thing about that is that each one of these companies is incentivized to, as soon as it has a single niche that it can do well in, it's incentivized to expand its capabilities as much as possible. What I mean by that is that the amount of logistical costs to of running a corporate vehicle in a traditional venture growth uh, setting is that you end up having huge amounts of almost fixed costs. Your legal team is going to be very high. The cost of engineering is going to be very, very high. So you've hired these engineers, and once you've built out your initial core product offering and people want that, you're in a situation where you're paying these people tons of money, and they've done useful things for you, but you don't, and so you don't want to fire them because it would cost so much to get someone new, but you need to keep finding things for them to do. And not only that, you have all of these operations costs of maintaining the product that you've built, of keeping it secure, and all of this. So... What that more or less ends up amounting to is that every single company builds a chat app after they've built their initial <laughs> application. Asana, I think, has a chat app. Google Drive has like three chat apps just inside of Google Drive. <laughs> they have the comments button. They have the send, send something in as an email note, etc. Um, so each of these companies are incentivized to, to build out more and more functionality themselves because their corporate vehicle is such that they're paid to take in as much resources as possible on the hope that they'll generate some massive some massive return just like striking oil. And so almost all of these companies fail. All of these companies are building very similar tech stacks. These companies aren't collaborating in any meaningful way. So like there's not a very healthy market for these companies to be building out libraries that these that they're sharing and using. The experiences that these companies are providing are basically all like these flat UIs that look like some type of chart dashboard because they can't really invest in better visual representation technology. And so what we end up with is a situation where all products look really similar. They share really similar design language. They're all trying to make you depend on them for as many possible use cases as you can, regardless of whether it's even that that heavily related to the initial reason you started using the product. And these companies are struggling in a zero-sum market for attention. So, you know, there's only a limited amount of ten- attention in the world at any given point in time. And these companies are really fighting very hard to be taking up as much of your attention as possible. So this is the what people mean when they talk about the attention economy. 
I think that the attention economy is more or less a transitory state. It's, it's not really something that we're going to stay in for a long period of time because I think it's entirely unsustainable. Are you saying that the, the attention economy is really a quirk of the organizational vehicle that we use to power and drive innovation? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really strong statement and really, I mean, that'd be really interesting to dig into, but we should stick on um, our original course because that is fascinating. All right. So the, so the attention economy is, is more or less a, an organizational quirk of, of the way that we structure Delaware corporations and the way that we fund them. And then also the set of technologies and social technologies that they use for coordinating. So, for instance, each of these things, each of these companies have unique operations costs that share a very, very significant skill set or a skill set that has a significant shared overlap. So Linux system admins, there aren't that many of them. It's hard to do, but it's basically the same for every one of these corporations. But they can't share those Linux sysadmins because there are small quirks that make each one of these tasks specialized for them. The same is true of like why why are software engineers employed full time by companies to write Node.js tools that other software engineers are writing the same tools for another company. So like Facebook and Google build out entirely similar infrastructure tooling. Uber builds out their own versions of these tools. Airbnb builds out their own versions of these tools. And all of these companies are, are incentivized to keep everything in-house. You end up with these large corporations that look that look like they're building out the infrastructure to more or less be nation states. Like they're like building out like banking utilities and fraud utilities. And, you know, every one of them has all of these varieties of teams that they absolutely have to have to stay around at, at the scale that they're at. Because they're incentivized to become very large via the growth model. They're also incentivized to uh, horizontally expand to entirely unrelated infrastructure that isn't really even specific to them at all. More or less what I'm saying is that the way that we build products is very inefficient and that we see that at every level of the user experience. So how does, how does the current venture capital growth company structure and the way that that influences user experiences relate to the way that Urbit will influence experiences and products? First off, Urbit is built on an approach of trying to standardize a very large part of the system stack such that a variety of problems are solved before the point at which you ever start developing. That's really, really good because they're solved in a very consistent way. So because Urbit is an abstract I.O. interface, it's more or less a sealed hermetic container from the rest of the internet and from the rest of the system that you're interacting with. It acts as a layer that separates all of the things that you want to do, all of the data that you're doing, all of the data that you're using from the actual hardware, from the machine itself, etc. And so it does that in a way that is very predictable to people that are building on top of it. And it does that in a way that is entirely consistent. So this is this is quite dissimilar from a world in which you really, really care what Linux kernel version you're on, what Linux distribution you're on, what version of Node, Node.js you're running on, what version of your Node package manager you're running on, and what versions of libraries that you have from that. And general applications in today's world depend on literally three to 10,000 libraries that, that they generally don't even really interact with or that they haven't even properly vetted. So Urbit 
is very interesting because it creates the possibility for very, very efficient allocation of resources. And this is, this is from a corporate perspective. When you're building out tooling, you can build out tooling against an entirely consistent, in fact, cooling down and eventually never changing interface. And that interface is being built to provide just the basic representation of all of the things that you would want your computer to do. So networking, file storage, database access and queries, build systems, application virtual machines, timers, just all of these basic functionalities that you would want, HTTP server. And it does it all in the same way. And so because it does it all in the same way, it there's there's a complete change around the infrastructure incentives. It's it's removing a lot of the DevOps costs that you would have, and it's removing a lot of the security holes that you would have as well. It reduces the size of the layer at which the security concerns are primarily going to be occurring in. So as opposed to like trying to use some strange middleware on top of your Node.js to prevent cross-site scripting attacks, you can do something much simpler where you have someone do a security audit of your interpreter, which is the layer that you're most likely to see security problems at. So the serialization and deserialization of type conversions into nouns and back out of nouns. And then if that's good, then you're just looking for logical problems in your user space application. And that's it. What, what I'm describing here is more or less that the cost to do security audits, the cost to do DevOps and do the maintenance of different versions of, of what you're building and maintaining the dependencies of what you're building against and picking what, what tools you should use and building out different types of infrastructure, the costs of doing this are radically simplified and removed from the corporate perspective if you have a singular base layer that you can build your applications against. And this isn't even getting to one of the more important parts of Urbit, which are that it offloads it changes the place where you're actually running your server logically. So you may still be running your server at a data center, but the owner of that data center and the owner of the intellectual property of the data that's running on some specific computer may not be Asana. It's more likely to be you, even if you're running the Asana application. So you're running the actual application yourself rather than the traditional software as a service approach that we have today. This all sounds great, but this is a completely different way of interacting with software. And it also involves, first of all, everyone having a um, an identity in Urbit, yes. right? So there's a sense in which you're selling an identity product, but you're also selling an entirely new computing platform. Sure. This is almost like, you know, we had computers, then we had laptops, now we have phones. And now you're suggesting we should have this new computing platform, which is this personal server, this Urbit. That's exactly what I'm suggesting. Moving on to a personal server is a really interesting problem from a product perspective. So we we covered some of the incentives relating to products, but we didn't really even talk about products. We talked about products in a very theoretical sense. Um, and, but it really, what really matters in this case is is not whether you can sell Urbit as an identity system or whether you can sell Urbit as a great computing platform because consumers don't really care about that. Consumers want a product that solves their use case. And for all intents and purposes to a consumer, your Urbit identity is just an email address. It's it's just like an email address to them. And it's 
doesn't have to be that complicated. To the consumer, at least in the beginning, there's not a large difference between I'm going to pay $10 a month for Slack and I'm going to pay $10 a month for an Urbit server that is hosting my data that is hosting a chat application. And so the real point at which we're going to need to be able to differentiate ourselves is uh, is on singular product offerings. And Urbit and Talon are not the same are not the same. Urbit of course is an open source platform project, but at some point Urbit as a brand is going to be of significantly diminished importance because people are not going to think about using an Urbit. They're going to think about using their computer and Urbit is just going to be on their computer. And so I don't think that we can win at all when in a, with a consumer audience by talking about Urbit. So when you say you can't win with a consumer audience talking about Urbit, Slack doesn't boast about how it uses the Chrome engine. Um, Signal doesn't boast about how it uses the Chrome engine. Uh, these are just completely separate products that happen to use this other piece of technology that is really a fundamental piece of infrastructure. And so what you're saying is that Urban itself is a similar piece of kit and you don't need to have multiple instances of it running in the same way that you have uh, multiple instances of Chrome running for every single Chrome-based application. Totally, totally. So really, you just want to be thinking about what's the gateway drug into getting someone to sign up for an Urbit subscription at all? And how do you make that process of, wow, there's an application I want to use on Urbit. Okay, now I paid them money, now I have an identity, and now there's a server hosted somewhere. And I don't even need to know that that's what's occurring. I just need to know that I'm paying them money, I have access to this service now. And then once I have access to that service, have ways to find and access other services that potentially are servicing me and the same community of people that I wanted to interact with, with the initial service that I was buying. So to make that concrete, I, I say, oh, um, there's this group of people that really like talking about um, the Belle Epoque. So, you know, different points in the 1800s and different types of artistic movements that were going on at the time. And I really want to talk to them. You know, they like me too or whatever. And so they're letting me into their secret club. But to actually talk to them and access that, I need to be running this piece of software on my own. And so I'm going to go take my invite that they gave me, sign up for this service, pay $10 a month, and now I'm in this chat room that I can talk to them in. And I'm just running it on my computer just like I would uh, Slack or something else. It may even be using the Chrome engine to display all of the things that it's showing me. But what's what's actually happening is that I now have an Urbit identity. I'm now interacting with their Urbits peer-to-peer. And now through this same interface, this chat interface, and the associated desktop, etc., I can now go find other applications. Like, for instance, I might want to set up a microblogging instance, similar to how Mastodon can be set up per community. And so I might go find that, pay the application developer a dollar or two dollars or whatever it is, and then automatically spin up this microblogging instance for all of my friends that I've been talking to in the chat application. And this is all happening within this same, this same window. It's in this same application from my standpoint. They're both just interacting with my Urbit. But I don't even need to know that I have an Urbit. I just know, wow, now I have access to all of these 
applications that I can just spin up and easily start using with my community. It sounds a bit like the app model we're used to on phones applied to desktop applications. I mean, that's kind of how this how this feels. Or is this is it something deeper than that? It's both, really. It's, on the one hand, an app model where it's simple for you to start using Urbit by using a single application and then find others later. But it's not only that. It's more that you started using Urbit because of some group of people that you wanted to talk to. Whether you wanted to do uh, document editing, editing with them, whether you wanted to work with them, whether you just wanted to chat with them, you probably started using Urbit because of some group of people. And you can take that same group of people and easily import and connect with them using any application on the Urbit platform. Does everyone have to purchase that application? Different applications are going to be financed in different ways. Some of them will be open source. Some of them will have different models. We'll see. The main reason why Urbit is being built in the way that it is stems from a fundamental orientation towards the world, which is that if you're going to build something, you should build something that's built to last. If you're going to build a church, you should build it in a way that the same church will be there 300 years from now, maybe 1,000 years from now. You, you should build it to be beautiful. You should build it to serve the purpose that it's built to serve. But you should build it to be absolutely as durable as possible because every generation comes in, has a different set of priorities, has a different capacity to be able to maintain and build critical infrastructure. And if you're going to build something, you should build it stemming from a kind of permaculture mindset that you shouldn't have to keep putting work into it to keep getting a return out of it. Because human effort and attention are the most valuable things that exist and are very, very scarce, particularly at the long right tail of uh, capability. Incredibly scarce. Unfortunately, our computational infrastructure has not been built with this mindset at all. The Linux kernel was built as an experiment in the 70s. And everything that we, every server that we use, every bit of banking software, every bit of software that the military uses, every bit of consumer product that we use is built on underlying assumptions that this fundamental technology that's interacting with the hardware is going to stay the same. It's going to work the same and is going to keep working generally without any problems. And the truth of the matter is that the Linux kernel is incredibly complex. It's about a one and a half million lines of code. And the general complexity of the Linux kernel is somewhere along the lines of the complexity of the human genome. Each one of the one, one and a half million lines of code in the Linux kernel compile, compiles down to some combination of x86 machine instructions. The number of these machine instructions is somewhere between 13,000 and 16,000. So each one of these one and a half million lines of code ends up creating 
some combination of instructions from some set of about 15,000 instructions. So if you think about the amount of complexity that that is, let's, let's think about the, the human genome, for instance. There's four base pairs of DNA. So at any given insertion point in, in DNA, there's four things that could possibly go into it. With the Linux kernel, for any given machine instruction, there's not just one of 15,000 instructions that could correspond to there's some combination of multiple of these 15,000 instructions that that line of code could correspond to. And first off, that's, that's an insane feat of human engineering. And second off, every single thing that we use on our computers today, every bit of critical computational infrastructure that we use depends on this working and not failing or having critical security vulnerabilities. And if it does fail, or if there are critical security vulnerabilities, or if people start finding critical security vulnerabilities at a faster rate than they can be fixed or resolved, then we will not be able to depend on our computers anymore. This is somewhat interesting because the Linux project is maintained as a piece of open source software. What that means is that there's not some corporation or government that's directly in charge of making sure that everything keeps working in the way that it does. And there aren't comprehensive training programs to teach people how to be the best Linux kernel developers. There aren't incredibly high-paying jobs to be Linux kernel developers. There are maybe a few hundred people in the world that understand how to contribute to the Linux kernel properly, and they're rapidly dying out. We are not replenishing that stock of people at, at any reasonable pace. And the way that we have our structural incentives of what people are paid to learn how to do, even in the software development in industry, is that people are not learning these skills. And, they're not being, and these skills are not being transferred either. So all of our software is built on top of this fundamental part of the tech stack that we're running out of people who know how to maintain that is incredibly complex and we don't have any plan on how to fix that hardly anyone even talks about this as a problem jonathan blow is an example of someone who does jonathan would tell you that we're actually already at the point where we aren't maintaining the security of the linux kernel to the point that we can make reasonable expectations of it he would say that we're already at the point where we have run out of enough people able to work on it such that we can have any expectations of our computers to work the way that they are currently. And I can only imagine how bad that problem will be in another 10 years. So if you're going to build software, you want to build it in a way that's durable and built to last. And so what that means is that you don't need to keep putting a lot of effort into maintaining it. And so the only real way to make it so that you don't have to keep maintaining it is to make a set of assumptions about how your software is going to work and how it's going to be structured so that responsibilities are delegated to different layers of that software in ways that make sense over the long term. In other words, there are never going to be that many people who are competent enough to understand how to write an Arvo interpreter at the, at the very base level of the machine that's interacting with the hardware. The percentage of de developers that ever get to that point that want to specialize in that is never going to be anywhere as high as the number of developers that are going to be doing application development or design or interfaces or something like that. 
the, the skill requirements are just not the same. So if you're going to build something that, that you want to last for a long time, you want the lowest levels of the system, and by lowest levels I mean closest to the machine, you want them to be built in a way that makes it possible for the people who are depending on that part of the system to work in a particular way that those people can actually depend on it for a very, very, very long time with very little effort put into maintaining it. So you want it to be simple and you want it to have a set of concerns and a set of responsibilities that don't bubble out of control or grow exponentially or grow significantly larger. And so this is one of the main rationales for why the Arvo kernel is built in a very different way than the Linux kernel is built. So the Linux kernel is a concrete I.O. interface. So what that means is that the Linux kernel is an input-output interface from the machine to the rest of the operating system, to, to all of the rest of the software that's running on top of it. The Linux kernel acts as a go-between between software that people write and the hardware. And in order for the Linux kernel to talk to different parts of the hardware, like the audio driver or the network, it has to have the specific implementation for the specific hardware driver that it's talking to. So the Linux kernel has to have the specific networking card code built into it. So it's able to talk to that specific networking card. And so the Linux kernel gets bigger and bigger over time because it needs to be able to support more and more hardware. Because more and more hardware is continually being produced. Yes. So this is fundamentally different and distinct from Arvo's, the Arvo kernel's approach, which is that it's an abstract I.O. interface as opposed to a concrete I.O. interface. So what that means is that Arvo, the, the Urbit operating system, specifies an interface that the hardware interacts with. And that's a different layer of the system than the actual hardware implementation. So, so the software that talks to the hardware directly. Arvo is not specifying as a part of its kernel implementation, this is how you talk to this specific part of the hardware. What it's saying is, this is the type of communication that I expect from a network interface. And whoever's writing that hardware code writes code that is meant to talk to Arvo's network interface and that acts as the go between between this specific piece of hardware and this abstract interface that Arvo has about networking. And so what it does is is it separates the hardware layer from the expectations that the software is making of it as opposed to building in the the expectations about the hardware into the software. On the subject of expectations, where does Urbit go from here? Tlon Chief Operating Officer Eric Newton and Community Manager Kenny Rowe both join in the next episode, discussing their respective plans for the future. As always, visit urbit.org forward slash install to get started. A Discord invite can be found at urbit.org and a Telegram channel at urbit.live.